0: We stopped off. We actually, on page four, uh, we did actually get into uh, this, the point that Abraham's salvation, his experience shows us how the message of salvation should be presented. Now, this is unusual and, and, it's, un- and it's fortunate for our sake because the Old Testament is not designed and it was not laid out like the New Testament where you had books that taught specific doctrine and corrected specific errors. You have an awful lot of history. And so you have to go through the history and try and find a little few nuggets here and there. And it's surprising to me as I look at it that the salvation of Abraham gives us so much information. It's the most detailed account of anybody's conversion in the entire Bible. And it's, it's in the Old Testament, and that's what makes it even more surprising. So uh, we mentioned last week we were looking at main point D on page 4. And the point that we wanted to make is that, that it does show... Abraham's salvation does illustrate and show something of how the message of salvation should be presented today. Now, I know there's some differences. The message is different, but the basis is the same. And for us today, the basis of salvation is the message. The basis is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. It has always been that. It will always be that. That's the basis of salvation from God's point of view. Now, it's fortunate for us today that that is also the message. But Abraham didn't have that same message, but... There is a lot that we can gather from this, and I believe this is one of the things that it does show us something of how the message of salvation should be presented. Now, and point number A under one, it says God began by offering Abraham a personal relationship with Himself, and that's important. Now, point number one was uh, I didn't put a scripture reference in there. I don't know. Did I mention last week at Romans three eleven under point A? It has it says Abraham did not seek God, but Abram came to, but. But God sought Abram and came to Abram on his term. Scripture bears witness to this truth in comma, and I left the reference off. I don't know why I didn't. It's Romans 3.11. It simply says in so many words that men do not seek God. Now, if you're listening to the last hour, we know that's the truth. They're spiritually dead. And that's one of those things. One, uh, I don't mind people who like to use evidence of creation to make a point with people. But be careful, folks. If we are offering someone that is dead information about doing something, and they're dead, think of it in terms of a funeral parlor. And I still remember that the illustration that I've used before where I saw somebody go up to a, to a casket, and there was a man laying in it. It was a woman. It must have been some relative. I don't know. could have even been the guy's wife for all I know. And she was talking to that individual. Now, you could have, she could have told him anything. What would he have done? Nothing. Nothing he couldn't hear. Now, the only difference, of course, maybe is an unsafe person is alive. Maybe they can hear what you're saying, but they're going to get the same response as a dead person. So please realize, if we try to sh- prove things to the unsafe, if we try to show them all of the things that are wrong in this world, show them all the things that are wrong with themselves, are they going to listen? Is it going to make any difference to them? No. The only thing that we can tell an unsafe person is going to make any difference... It's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. And there's some things we add to that. Now, that's the, base, that's the basic message. But along with that message, there are things that we can add to it that I think you see back here. And one of them is that God began dealing with Abram by offering him a relationship with himself. And that's Genesis 15. Well, let's go back there and just read it again. And you can see it. Now, God could have come to him and said what a terrible person he was. God could have come to him and told him that he was this or that. But that's not how God approached this man. He, after God saw fit fit, this man was uniquely prepared to respond. That, that chapter 14, please remember, uh, when, when you read through the Bible, you see something like this, this fascinating story in the 14th chapter. Say, oh, that's a great story. But ask yourself, what's it there for? Is it just there because it's a fascinating piece of history? No, it's there because it feeds into the life of this man who's going to, be the, he's going to be the foundation for the Jewish race. And it feeds into why this man came to, came to God, why this man was even willing to listen. It's a rather interesting story from the point of view than you think of how hard-headed this man must have been if he had to have his life in peril before he was willing to listen. Well, that's probably true of a lot of others today too. Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, "Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward." Now we say he's offering him a personal relationship. How would you, how do you see that? Well, I am your shield. Now you notice "am" is italicized. Hebrew, like Greek, does not supply the present tense verb to be. It is. I am. So I am is, is implied. It, it, we would put it in English because you have to have a verb. We don't use verbless clauses. So that's correct. It says, I am. I am continually. I am your shield. I'm the one protecting you. Now, what does that mean? God's involved in his life. And he wants Abraham to realize it. In other words, he wants Abraham to have a personal relationship with him. Now, I mentioned this before, and I didn't put it in your notes at this point. But if you look at Jeremiah chapter 9, there's something that I think is worth remembering. I don't know if you had the same... The problem that I did, but in my younger years as a believer, I kind of thought as I looked at the Old Testament, even when I didn't know the distinctiveness from Old to New Testament, I did know that there was a difference because of the law. And I thought that all really the Old Testament believer had to do was just slug it out with the law, just follow the law, just keep the law and keep his head down and stay out of trouble. But in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and verse 24, This is a surprising verse, and and I've, I've never forgotten this verse, and it's one I think you should remember. Did God actually have an interest in individuals in the Old Testament? Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but he that glorieth, let him glory in this, that he understands, number one, and knows, number two understands and knows me that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness. You notice the first word, loving kindness? A gracious kind of a kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. So did God want to have a relationship with his people? He certainly did. He certainly did. And so when you go back to Genesis 15, I would say it's very reasonable to say that God wanted a relationship with Abram. Now, you notice in the bottom of the page, we touched upon these things about how Abram had already meant the Lord and the word of the Lord identifies himself as Lord, so when, when, when Abram is dealing with this individual that's talking to him in a first in a vision, but then he's ultimately going to be there with him because he's going to take him out of the tent. In, in verse um, verse 5 it says, And he brought him forth abroad and said unto him, Look toward the heaven And tell the stars if you're able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall your seed be. So initially, Abraham has a vision of an individual that he recognizes. And evidently, at some point, this individual is not just in a vision. He actually becomes present. He's actually there in a personal bodily form. Now, God did appear in the Old Testament. And this would be, when it's called the word of the Lord, well, I hope you know where you find out who the word of the Lord is. Where do you find out the word of the Lord? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, John wrote that knowing that there would be people who would have the Old testament, and they would need to know that the word of God. I always had thought, and some do, and you see the word of the Lord came to him in a vision. Oh, I always thought, well, he, he heard something. He heard a voice in his head no he saw he saw a man he saw a representation of the pre-incarnate Son of God appearing to him in a vision who also after that you 'll notice it says verse five he brought him forth now a vision's not going to grab a hold of your hand and bring you out of the tent. not going to happen, and we mentioned last week this is kind of a fun point in hebrew it 's he caused him to come he caused him to come forth. it emphasizes. He had to be there because of the unique, unique emphasis. This is that one form of the verb in Hebrew that makes Hebrew so much fun. Is it he caused him to come forth? He made it do. He made it happen. It emphasizes that he did. It just if it just said he brought him forth, that would be good enough. But if it says he himself brought him forth, it puts an emphasis. In other words, Abraham was in the tent, and God had to bring him out. Now you might wonder, and this is we're kind of skipping a little bit in our notes here, but why would Abraham have to be brought out of his tent? And was Abraham in his tent the whole time? He may have been in his tent the whole time. But why did he have to be brought out of the tent? Why did God have to make him come out? Well, you know, if you look at how he's talking to God, if you go through, and this would be fun to do, take time to go through Genesis from this point, 15, through about 18 or 19, and see if Abraham ever talks to God the way he does right here. This is unusual because look what he says. So God says to him, he says, fear not, I'm your shield. I protected you. I'm your exceeding great reward. It's, 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 it's your reward, but it's your great reward. And then there's a little, little Hebrew particle that says exceedingly. It's exceedingly great reward. Now, there's a reward and a great reward is something, but an exceedingly great reward, what would that be? That'd be a whole bunch of something. And Abraham is going to get a whole bunch of somethings, blessings along the way. But when you look at how Abraham responds, God says to him, I'm protecting you and I myself am your reward. In other words, I want a relationship with you and I have things I'm going to give you. Now, we're going to show you in a moment on the top of page five that you see what that word reward is. The basic idea of it is is engaging uh, for the services of a person in return for pay. You, you, You hire somebody, but it's also used another way. We'll get that in a second. But before we get to that, why God brought him forth, I asked the question, why did God bring him out of the tent? Now, you might not have noticed this or thought about this, but the fact that it says he caused him to come forth indicates that, that God made him come out because he had to. And the reason he had to, I believe, is look how he's talking to God. God says, I, I'm your reward. I'm protecting you. And Abraham says, Lord God, what will you give me? Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Didn't God say I'm protecting you? Did he say thank you for protecting me, God? What did he say? What are you going to give me? Oh, he sounds like a little kid, doesn't he? Gimme, gimme, gimme. That's what... Boy, that reminds me, Pastor. That, that. There, there is a well, there is one of those little things that get under my skin. When people pray, do you ever notice how people pray sometimes? Gimme, 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 God. You know what? I've noticed in Scripture there's something called praise. There's something called thanksgiving. That doesn't have much to do with gimme, gimme, does it? That's Sometimes you... You listen to people pray and it's kind of, it's under my, you know, God do this and God do that. So are you telling God or are you asking him? Well, Abraham here is more or less telling God. He says, what are you going to give me seeing I go childless? Now, does that sound like respectful? I don't think I'd call that a respectful way to talk to Almighty God. He sees the second person of deity. He knows he's dealing with God because, remember, he's already seen God back in Genesis 12, verse 1. God had already appeared to him, and it would have been the second person, and he already saw, so he knew who he was talking to. He wasn't talking to a stranger. He was having a vision, so that should have told him something right off. And then the person comes out of the vision and becomes a real person. He ought to know by then. He knew who he was dealing with, but yet he says, what are you going to give me? Then verse 3, he says something. And and this is interesting because here's a little touch of Hebrew. Hebrew, like English, uses a word order. Now, you can switch word order around for emphasis. If you say, you should never talk like that to your boss. And then if you say, to your boss, you should never say those kind of things. Now, all of a sudden, what, what is the difference? To your boss, you're putting an emphasis on, he's the boss. You putting him first, it means you should never say this to your boss. Now, what are we saying that for? Because the word order is shifted here. And Abraham says in verse three, look, behold, to me, you've given no seed. Now, it's translated that way, but it's put first. That's not the normal word order. The normal order would be you have given me no seed. You have given me no seed. Now, you see how that sounds. Now, what's the difference between you've given me no seed and saying, to me, you've given no seed? Do you see the difference? You, can't, you can almost not help but say it that way. And he says, behold, or look. He says, look, to me, you've given no seed. Now, does this sound like a man that has respect from God? This is, to me, this is surprising. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, really. This man is not showing any respect to God he knows who he's talking to and this man is afraid now whether his fear has done something to his mind and he's and he's reacting uh, or something like I don't know but I can say only this much he is not talking to God with anywhere near the degree of respect and that's why it says in verse 5 he brought him forth he caused him to come forth you might miss that it's not translated it doesn't show the, the force of this one Hebrew verbal form but it's he caused him to come forth. In other words, it's like the son of God laid hand and says, come on out, come on. He had to, he physically pulled him out of the tent. Why? Because I think Abraham realized, I put my foot in it. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying what I should. I think he's, if he was not afraid before, he should be afraid. Now, Now no, he was afraid. But if I would say he was probably by this point, if he realized what he had done, he's more afraid. And so God had the son of God, the pre-incarnate son, had laid hands and says, come on out. And the interesting thing is, is God respond to him like he responds to God. He brought him forth, verse 5, and, and said, look toward the heaven and tell the stars if you're able to name them. And he said to him, so shall your seed be. So now Abraham responds differently. And it says, he, amen, the Lord. I like that because it's the word translated amen, which means to believe. He believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted to him for righteousness. Now you'll notice that is a little bit different than you might think as a message of salvation would be. Why would, why would that work? Because there's something in common with the gospel. Um, and I'll get back to that wages in a moment. But when you think about the gospel, you present the gospel to someone. Number one, can you prove that Christ went to the cross to someone? I can't prove it. History says it, but I can't prove it. I can just point to historical records. I can point to the Bible. Uh, You can't prove it. Can you see it? No, we can't see it. Does it sound logical on a human scale if you say to an unsafe person that somebody that never knew you that thousands of years ago the death of this one person could have anything to do with you? Does that even sound reasonable on a human scale? No, you see, God calls upon someone to believe something because he said it's true. And there's where there's, an, there's where there's a similarity because God told this man something to believe that was not possible. He couldn't see having seed. He couldn't see having as many kids as, as the stars in heaven because why? It says back in the, in the end of the 11th chapter, Sarah was barren. She couldn't have any children. So he's being asked to believe something he can't see, he can't prove, he has no way of knowing. He's just simply because God said so. Now, that is what you call salvation by faith. From God's point of view, it's based on the work of the cross. But does God have the right to do this? Sure does. He's God. He's God. It's based upon this work. So, now, I should, before we get too far beyond, I should go back and pick up. You'll notice in the top of page 5, and I got ahead of myself, but... It's easy when you're having fun teaching some of these things because this is the Old Testament is a lot of fun to teach. It's just I'm surprised sometimes, Pastor, that there aren't more guys that want to do it, but then that just leaves a wide-open field for people like me. Now, the second, you notice that I I went to this thing called the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament, and it's a pretty scholarly and usually pretty good source of information. I double-check it where I can, and they define this word that is translated... I am your great reward, in verse, in verse uh, 1, as being uh, serv- the basic idea of the word is engaging the services of a person in return for pay. In other words, you hire somebody and you're paying them. But it is also used, and this is by context, as, a, as reward, something that is given, which was not earned or given by grace. That's my definition. That's a secondary definition. And you have several verses here that that I believe, did we share these last time? I think we may have, but I printed them in your notes. In Psalm 127, verse 3. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. So it's not something that people own. And I think Abraham, his wife Sarah, and I think Hannah, the mother of Samuel, would agree that it's a reward. It's something given by grace. Because I recall a message a pastor had one time when he mentioned about God doesn't guarantee anyone the right to have children. See, somebody listened to your sermon, and I still remember it. Uh, but remember, pastor preaching, and it was interesting that he would say that because that's exactly what I, I see in, in, in Scripture, that it's not guaranteed that people, everybody's going to have children or a bunch of children. Some people probably shouldn't. Some of the people out there, the way they raise them and treat them, I wonder why God gave them the ch- chance to have them in the first place. Then Isaiah 40, verse 10, it says, Behold, the Lord will come with His strong hand, and his arm will rule for him. His reward is with him, and his work is before him. Now, in context, that relates to the establishment of the millennial kingdom that he's talking about, and it's his reward is with him. Now, anything concerning the kingdom, did, did Israel earn anything for the kingdom? Did they earn any brownie points with God? Well, what happened when, this, when the king came at the, the triumphal entry? What happened to him? Oh, they welcomed him with open arms, right? No, not exactly. They rejected him outright. So anything that they're going to get, he said his reward. Now, it's not a wage. These people aren't getting paid for what they earned. If they were getting anything, they would be getting chopped off at the knees. Now, I put some other verses here, and you can take time to look them up. I gave you a number of references where you can see that this word, uh, the unearned wage, you can see where that Hebrew word is translated that way. And if you want the pronunciation of that, if you're interested, it's sakar, as I put it in the English. And uh, it reads from the, le- from the right to the left. So it reads backwards. So when you look at it, you're seeing R. For, the first letter you're seeing is R. is actually the last letter of the word. Hebrew is a fun language for that reason, among others. So now, uh, my, my proofreader, somehow or another, I have point number three is a duplication of what I had put. So I crossed out point number three with A, B, and C and put three by personal rela- Abra- God's personal relationship to Abraham. I, I apologize. I proofread this. I thought maybe, maybe I should have had Benjamin, my grandson, proofread this. He would, have done, he would have, could have done this well. But so that one section in there, point three with A, B, and C, just cross that out. And uh, if I had caught it sooner, I would have reprinted the whole section, but I didn't realize it till it was already printed in here. So point number three, then, would be God's personal relationship to Abram would involve numerous blessings. God said to Abram, he says, I'm your exceeding great reward. I'm going to give you things that you have not earned and you do not deserve. Now there are a number there's a number of things he's going to give him really when he says exceeding great reward when you stop and think about the scope of what he's going to say an exceeding great reward i would say if you just stopped at point number a you would have an exceeding great reward because god gave Ab- abram a son by sarah and that actually required i believe two miracles two miracles why would i say that well point number 1 in genesis 11:30 we find out that sarah was barren before abram and, and Sarah came to Canaan. And that was when she was back, in, and that was back in the time when she was of childbearing age. And you read that back in, verse, uh, in Genesis eleven thirty one. 31, it says, And Terah took Abram his, his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law. And they went to go to the, let's see, well, Sarah was barren, verse 30, excuse me. But Sarah was barren, and Sarai, as she was known then, and she had no child. So in her prime of life, when she was younger, she was barren, she could have no children. So if she was to have a child then, it would have required something that is outside the normal laws of nature, laws of science, as we call it. But now, I say it's double because by age 90, here's somebody that couldn't in the peak, in the prime of their life have children. Now at age 90, she's going to have one? I mean, even if, she was, even if she was fertile myrtle when she was in her prime, at age 90, I'm afraid that it's, it, the story's all over. It's long since done. And so now I'd say it's, it's a double miracle. And now it says it's impossible. Now you do have scripture that tells you that in Romans. Uh, well, let's go. Let's go to the Hebrews passage. You can look at Romans four nine and it tells you 4.19. It, it tells you that that's impossible. But I think the, the bit of in Hebrews, we don't really always see a lot about Sarah in the Old Testament, even in, in the book of Genesis, And you might wonder, well, did she really have all that much faith? Or was she just kind of going along with her husband? And uh, after all, she did want to have Hagar uh, bear children for her. And that was kind of not what God said would happen. And so you wonder, well, did she really have a whole lot of faith? But you notice in verse 11 of Hebrews 11. Now, please remember, these are acts of faith these people had. They didn't have, they weren't able to live a life of faith, but they had some acts of faith. And some of them were pretty remarkable. So it's, it's through faith also, Hebrews 11, verse 11, Sarah also herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, she judged him faithful. Could she see? I mean, you talk about having faith. Could she see anything? Could she see the possibility of it? No, there's no way. It was, it, to her it would sound like it, it's impossibility. It's impossible. She had to believe something because God said so. And that's where faith comes in. Faith is simply taking God at his word. That's what that's what Hebrews eleven one does. It gives you a definition of faith. Faith is simply taking God at his word. You don't see it. You can't see it. You can't prove it. But you say, God said it? That's good enough for me. And that's what Sarah did. Now you think, well, gee, this is the same lady that a few years before this, she's going to give Hagar to Abram. So you think, well, boy, she's, she's, not, she's not with the program here. She's trying, to, she's trying to help God out by giving Hagar. Boy, yeah. you know, I wonder, just as in a little aside, what would have happened if God had not allowed Sarah to give Hagar to Abram and Ishmael hadn't been born? Do you remember what Ishmael was like? He was the guy you'd love to have as your neighbor. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it says he was a wild man, or the Hebrew says he was a wild ass. His hand was against every man; every man's hand was against him. Gee, I wonder why we have trouble in the Middle East. Does that sound like some people that you know over there now? Oh, I'd just love to have some of them as my neighbor. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, so you would have not thought that about Sarah, but so Sarah. So you have. Eight, so if God did nothing else for them, this is this is something remarkable. This is, a, in essence, I'd call it a double miracle. It's something that she didn't have coming, she didn't have a right to claim it, and yet God took a woman who in her prime couldn't have children, and she was so far beyond. It's, it's a double miracle. It's two things, as it were, to me. Now, maybe it's just a single miracle, but it sure looks like it's something terrific. Now, we can also say that God had already offered Abraham something by grace, even before he was saved. Do you remember back in Genesis 12 that God did say, if you go to this land, I'm going to give it to you. Now, Abraham's not saved yet. But God offered him something. Did Abraham earn that? No. Even now, Just because Abraham did not accept it does not mean it wasn't a, something given by grace. Now, if that were the case, if, it, if it's only grace when you accept it, then I, I, brother, we've got a problem with the Christians because there aren't very many, there's not much grace around because if only when people respond to grace, will we call it grace, then, boy, a lot of the New Testament doesn't, doesn't have much to say because people don't accept it. So, but it's grace even, even though people don't take it. And that, and that's a sad thing about what happens today in the church. So, so God did offer him something. Then point number C, immediately after salvation, God makes an unconditional covenant. Well, here we go. Why did he do it? This is kind of a low point in Abraham's life, I think. It's because Abraham doubts God. Now, you realize the first thing Abraham does as a saved man is to doubt what God said. Do you know that? Look, look at Genesis 15. Now, in verse 6, he's saved. We know that from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and we've, we emphasize that. This man is the only person in the Old Testament and one of the only people in Scripture that has a verse telling you when he was saved, exactly when he was saved. And you can figure exactly at the time because it matches this text right here perfectly. So he's saved in, in verse 6. Now look at what happens in verse 7. And he, that's the Lord, said unto him, Abram, I am the Lord. All caps. That's the, that's the self-existent one. I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, amen, I'm ready to go. No, it says, whereby, or if you please, a little bit of Hebrew, by what? By what do I know that I shall inherit it? Now, that changes things. He doesn't just say, how am I going to get it? He says, by what? He wants some kind of an object. The what refers to an object, by what? What are you going to give me to prove it, in other words? First thing he does is he doubts God. That's the first thing he does after he's saved. Now, that might surprise you, but there it is. You look at it. And so what I believe Abraham is looking for is he's fishing for something. He's fishing for either a promise or actually more like a covenant, a contract. And that's exactly what God's going to give him. Now, that covenant that he gives him, and we didn't put it in your notes, but if you look at it, if you remember the type of covenant, in verse 9, he says, And he said unto him, take, take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took, un, he took unto him all these, and he divided them in the midst, divided them in half, and laid the pieces one against another, but the birds he divided not. So in other words, he split the animals apart. And why would he do that? What's the reason for doing that? Why did God have him do that? Because this is a covenant, and it's the most dramatic form of covenant that I know of. What this covenant signified was two individuals would walk arm in arm between this covenant, according to history, and that signified, if I do not do my part in this covenant, you can do this to me. Cut me in half. In other words, boy, I'd hate to say, would you, would you like to sign a home mortgage that way? If I miss a payment, you can... No. I don't think anybody would want to, but this is this is the type of this is an unconditional covenant, and God was so gracious to this man that He not only gave him a covenant when he doubted God, but He gave him the most dramatic form of covenant that He could have done. This is dramatic. And what happens if you remember the story? If you look a little bit further on down. Verse 11, it says, And the fowls came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, an horror of great darkness fell upon him. Okay, so now Abraham has a deep sleep and a horror of great darkness, which is what we would call today a nightmare. So Abraham's asleep, and he has a nightmare. And now God's going to speak, but guess what? Abraham's having a nightmare. He's asleep. He's not going to hear this. Do you know Abraham didn't hear one word that was said? He didn't, because he's having a nightmare. Now, you just say, well, then, Don, why in the world is it recorded here? Because Moses recorded it because God wanted his people to know what he had promised Abraham, even though Abraham didn't hear it. Why didn't Abraham get to hear it? Could it be that he was a little bit audacious and a little bit demanding? Could it be that God already had told him that he was going to give him the land and Moses, or and Abraham refused it? There's a little bit of a penalty in here because you're going to see as we read through this, that Abraham is not going to get the land in his lifetime. Whereas you go back to Genesis 12, and he said, I'm going to make a few great nation. Right now, I'm going to do it. He's not going to get it right now. Let's read on. You'll see it. So Abraham's asleep, and he said, And Abraham, know of a surety, your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. Now, wait a minute. Didn't back in Genesis 12, God say, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to, right here, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and you shall all the families... That, well, wait a minute. His seed's not going to even be there for 400 years. And verse 14, Also that nation whom, whom they will serve will I judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great substance. And you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall bury, be buried in a good old age. Does Abraham get the land in his lifetime? It's kind of what you call a consequence. kind of what you call a consequence. You, know, you, remember, you remember somebody that wanted to go into the promised land badly and he didn't get to go? All Moses did instead of speaking to the rock was he lost his temper and he hit the rock not once but twice. He was told to smite the rock one time and the next time he's told to speak to the rock. And what did he do? Abraham was, or rather Moses was furious and he hit it twice and guess what? He didn't get to go into the promised land. And God got angry with him once when he told him. And you can read about it back in in, uh, Deuteronomy when he records it. God was was unhappy with him for disobeying. One little thing like that, there was a consequence to it. So there was a consequence to how Abraham reacted to God. He didn't get the land in his life. Now, he's going to be resurrected in the millennial kingdom. He is going to be there as a resurrected saint. But he missed out on something because he questioned God. He doubted God. It cost him something. You know, I wonder sometimes if some of the blessings that we could have, if we don't lose them because we don't believe God enough to try and take them. Yeah, we, we do. We can. So Abraham doesn't, doesn't, see, doesn't hear this. Then he says, verse 16, But in the fourth generation they shall come hither, again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it shall come to pass, and it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. Now, you have, a, you have a smoking furnace and burning lamp, and it went between those pieces. What are you supposed to happen to those pieces? They were fricasseed, they were burned, they were charred. This man's going to get up in the morning, and he's going to see these, and he's going to know what this means. That he know it's going to tell him that God was the only one that went through there. And that God made a covenant. So if God is the only one who went through there, then it's unconditional. So Abraham knows God promised him something or made a covenant to guarantee him something. But does he know what it was? No. Look back. At, if you have a doubt, look back at verse 12. A deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell on him. In verse 18, he doesn't hear this. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto your seed. Oh, unto your seed I've given this land. He's not going to get it, not in his lifetime, unto your seed. Now, it's going to be a ways off, but unto your seed I've given this land. From the river of Egypt, that would be the Nile, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. By the way, did they ever get all that land from the river, from the Nile, all over to the Euphrates? No, they didn't. They're lucky they held on to what they did. You read the book of Judges and you'll find out they didn't do what God said and God didn't even drive out all the Gentiles. And there was a plan where God would eventually drive them out as they increased in size. But they never increased enough to get the land that God offered them. In fact, did you know, we just read about it this morning, did you know that the, that the tribe of Judah was given Ashdod, Gaza, uh, Gath? You know what those cities were? Those were cities of the Philistines. They fought against David. They fought against Saul. Judah never even took that part. They were supposed to have taken that. They didn't do it. They didn't obey God. So there was a lot of problems with these people. But they never got all the land. So you have a description of the land from west to east in terms of the geographical features. You have the Nile all the way to Euphrates. Those are geographical. But now he's going to describe the land essentially from south to north in terms of the people, which is kind of interesting. He says the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim. You know who they are, don't you? The Rephaim, the half-breeds, the men that were very tall. One of them, interestingly enough, by the way, this is this is fun. I'm getting aside, and I shouldn't do it. But you know what? Where, where Caleb went? Caleb was one of the spies. That he was from the, from the tribe of Judah. And he inherited a, a piece of land, and you know who was on that piece of land that he inherited? The Anakim. You know, do you remember Deuteronomy chapter nine, verse two? This is fun. I, I know it's. A, I apologize for taking you aside, but I'm having too much fun with this, and I think it's too. It's too important. It's. It's. This is both fun, but it's also beneficial. Now, hero Israel, uh, Deuteronomy nine, verse one: You are to pass over Jordan this day to Gwyn to possess the nations greater and mightier than yourself and cities great and fenced up to heaven. Now, that's not hyperbole, great and fenced up to heaven. A people great and tall, the children of the Anakim. Now, the, the S doesn't belong in there. Anakim is plural of Anak. So it's, it's a family clan of whom you know and of whom you've heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? You know who went and stood before them? You can read it in Judges. Caleb. Caleb went up and drove three sons of Anak out of that mountain. He took it. That's, that's what those people were like. And it's interesting that they were right in the place where Judah was going to be, right in the heart of the nation where they fierced Anakim. Apparently from Deuteronomy 9:2, I would take it to mean that they would probably have been the most vicious, the most ferocious of all the Rephaim. It's one family clan, Anakim, the sons of Anak. They were big. They were big boys. You get somebody nine, over 10 feet tall, and you say, um, and you're 5 foot tall in David's time and before, 5 foot tall, 10 foot tall. Is that kind of a mismatch, you think? <laughs> Did you know Goliath of Gath? I think we mentioned this last week. Goliath of Gath had a coat of mail. He was a little guy. He was only 9 foot 6. He wasn't that big for rephaim But his coat of mail weighed 5,000 shekels of brass. And we know what a shekel was. And I did some research a few years ago and I found out that you converted over the coat of mail that Goliath wore weighed 153 pounds. Now, could you imagine wearing a coat of mail? This is just the armor that you wear over the front, and over the back, It comes down to your waist. That's just part of his armor, it was 153 pounds. You know, if I had to wear that, I uh, Scott, you might be able to walk out the door wearing that. I always carry it. <laughs> You know, some of us might, I mean, maybe Scott, he's a big, strong man. He might, but I, I don't think Kevin and I would want to try a 153-pound piece of arm. Just one piece? So these, this, this is what the Anakim were like. They were gigantic human, humanoid-type beings. So, as you look at this, they, the God has given this land to them, and, he's, and you have the, these people that are in there. Now, these other ones, none of them were easy to fight, but the Rephaim stick out like a sore thumb to me because they not only were fighters, but they were huge. They were intimidating. If you remember back in Numbers 13, please remember that. that Numbers 13 it's not hyperbole. When you see back there, if you remember what it says in Numbers 13, just for a moment, in, this, in the giving of this land, God has offered this man as a benefit. It's, it's incredible that he gives them so much land and such a choice land. But... In verse 31, you know, Caleb has said that we can take the land, verse 30. In verse 31, but the men that went up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they searched out unto the children of Israel, saying, the land through which we have gone to search, it is a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof. Is that, is that a purpley? No, he says, and we, the people we saw there are men of a great stature. And there we saw the... Giants, it's Rephaim. This is, we saw the Rephaim, the sons of Anak. Deuteronomy 9 2, the sons of Anak, who can stand in front of them. I'm not talking about standing in front of them to, to shake hands and, and take a political poll and see what they thought about the upcoming presidential election. Who can, who can, in other words, who can fight them? Who can face them? And they're right there, and you see, interesting we could ask you a question, too. Here's a question for off the record. Why were those Rephaim there? How did they get there? And who put, them, who put them there? I think I can give a pretty good guess. Wouldn't it be somebody called Satan to try and terrify the people? And it looks like it succeeded because for 40 years, they didn't take the land. Anyway, so when you look back at the, at the covenant that God made with Abram back in Genesis 15 you have the land described from south to north in terms of the people. None of those people in there were were slackers at fighting. The Hittites, history found them in verse 20, the Hittites, they were a huge empire and they were a fierce, warlike people. And so all of these nations were greater and mightier. And God even said that in Deuteronomy 9. He said, these nations are greater and mightier. I'm going well, to take care of them. That's all they had to do. So Abraham, you talk about back in page 5, You talk about something that was gracious and unearned. It was a reward. Yeah, that was. Now, why did God give him that reward? Well, why did God give you and I eternal life? It's called grace, isn't it? We didn't earn it. It's a, it's a remarkable gift. Sometimes if you stop and think about it, you have God's own, you have God's kind of life indwelling you and it can be seen out through you. Now, Can you comprehend that? I have the most difficult time understanding how God could do that for me, how something so remarkable could be. Why would God do that for me? Why? If you've ever wondered that, you're in good company. A lot of us have felt the same way. So God gave this man a lot. But now, if all of that wasn't enough, beside the covenant, if you turn over to Genesis chapter 17, he's going to give him yet another benefit that Abraham didn't earn. And now you're going to see, this man is really, really, his, his fortunes are going to take off on this one. Because God's going to do something for him and tell him something that is just, I'm sure Abraham, by this point, his mind is spinning. Now this is later. Granted, this is not at the same time as Genesis 15. This is sometime later. Because it says, Genesis 17, verse 1. And Abraham was 90, and nine, 90 years and 9 old. The Lord appeared to Abram, saying, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me, and you be perfect. Now, not sinless. You, be, you match up to what you should be. And I will make my covenant between thee and me, and multiply thee exceedingly. Now, he says, I will make my covenant with me and thee. He says, I will make, not I've already made. People try to say, oh, this is a repetition of the Abrahamic covenant. Well, the Abrahamic covenant actually is Genesis 15. It's not Genesis 12, because Genesis 15 says I made a covenant. Genesis 12 doesn't say any such thing. Genesis 15 is an unconditional covenant. That's why if anybody asks me today, does that land belong to Israel? I'd say, what does it say in Genesis 15? I have given the land, no strings attached. I have given it. It's still theirs. They may not be there today. That's a bit. There's a long story behind it. You can read the Old Testament to find out why they're not there, but it's still their land. So, he says, I will make my covenant. So he's not talking about a covenant he's already made. He's talking about what he's going to make. And what is it? And multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for thee, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Number one. Number two, neither shall your name be called Abram, but shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations I have made thee. And I will and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Now he's gonna turn and make another covenant right after that about circumcision. But this you stop at this one. The circumcision is not as not much of a reward really, but this one is. Now the name Abram means exalted father. Abraham in Hebrew means father of a multitude. So now he says, I'm gonna make you exceedingly fruitful. And he said, no, wait a minute. Hagar has Ishmael, so he has two sons, right? Wrong. Hold your finger here and go over to Genesis 25. You know, whatever God did to rejuvenate Abraham, it sure must have worked. It really must have worked because look what you see in Genesis chapter 25, beginning at verse 1. Now, we we see at the end of chapter 24 that Sarah's died because uh, he was comforted Isaac, uh, Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So Sarah dies and Isaac has lost his mother. Then verse 20, then chapter 25, then Abraham took a wife and her name was Keturah and she bare him. Now hold on to your socks here, folks. Zimran, Jokshan, Medin, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Those are a whole bunch of nations in the Middle East. A whole bunch of nations. Who's their daddy? Abram. Abram's their daddy. Now, when God says, I'm going to make you fruitful, that's exactly what happened. And so when you see Genesis 17, the first eight verses, people do not realize that he's not referring back to a covenant he made because he said, this, I'm going to make this covenant. And then he tells them what it is. You're going to be fruitful. And we see in Genesis 25, bingo, the man was fruitful. Now, he wasn't exactly young when this happened because Sarah dies and he's already got his son and his son is already married and now all of a sudden this man that has a son that's gotten married he's going to turn around and crank out six more kids on his own brother whatever he did that, that's, they, if they could sell that today boy they'd have people lined up for all, for all week to come into that kind of a service so when you look at this this is stuff that God gave to Abram he didn't have coming it was by grace Now, there's one last thing he's going to give Abraham, and I guess you could make a case for this one in Genesis 22, saying, well, Abraham earned this one. Well, uh, yes and no. Yes and no. Genesis 22, God is going to make one more covenant. Did you realize that Abraham had four covenants with God? They always talk about, theologians talk about the Abrahamic covenant, to which I would say, which one? Which one are you talking about? And if I said that, most of them would say, what do you mean? There's only one. No, there's not. There's four. Genesis 15 is one. We just saw Genesis 17 was a covenant that God said, I'm going to make of you a father of many nations. Right after that, we didn't take time to look at it, but you can go back to Genesis 17 and see that then God made another covenant, with the covenant of circumcision. So you have land covenant, covenant to guarantee to him greatness, and then a covenant of circumcision. That's three covenants. Now here comes number four. Now Genesis 22 starts off, and this is the moment... When this man proved that he was remarkable, up to this point, Abraham was a schlep. He was spiritually not that much. He really wasn't. He didn't do much of anything. Oh, I know in the 18th chapter, he talked to God, and he was bargaining to protect Lot. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not bad. I mean, that's, But it's not anything that you'd write a home about. It's not a major event. But this is an event unlike any in the Bible. I would say personally, from my point of view, this is the greatest act of faith any place in the Bible. Because you read Genesis 22, verse 1. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We'll just read a couple verses and then you'll see what we're talking about. It came to pass after these things that God did tempt. And that word for tempt means to try something thoroughly. It's a word that means to try something thoroughly, to see, where, to see what its strength is. Abraham put this man to the ultimate test. He tried him thoroughly. And you can see it. Context bears it out. He did tempt Abraham and said unto Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he, that's God, said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac. Now, It wasn't his only son. It was also Ishmael, but it was his only son that mattered. It was the only son with Sarah. It was the only son that was going to matter in God's program. Take now your only son Isaac, whom you love, and get you to the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell thee of. Now you read down through the context, you find that Abraham say, I'm not going. This is my son. I can't do this. No, he went. He went. And in fact... If you go down and look at verse 10, Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now we could have read that he built up the altar and he put the wood on it and then he bound up Isaac in verse 9 and put him on there. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Now you see an act of faith. You fear God, seeing you have not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. And by the way, uh, in verse five, you can see that Abraham's faith was already there. We should have read that maybe. Abraham and said to his young men, "Abide here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship. And we—it's a plural, it's a first person plural. I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and we will come again to you." So Abraham already believed. He already had faith. This man has got the most remarkable faith. Before he has no way to there's nothing that could ever make him believe that that he was going to come back with this boy. If he's going to put him on the altar as a burnt offering, there is no way that he's going to come again. Now, did Abraham know that there was going to be a ram caught in in the thicket? No, he had no way of knowing that. This man had faith. Because he believed God, God said that he was going to that this seed was going to inherit the land. This was his seed. Abraham knew it, and yet he was willing to offer it. Now, this is before Keturah. This is this is this is his son. He can't say Ishmael. God has already rejected Ishmael because Abraham bargained for Ishmael earlier, and God says, "No, no, not Ishmael. He's going to come in your loins through Sarah. Ishmael's is out of the picture." So this is his only chance at this point of anything. Now you find out the answer to what is going on in Hebrews 11 and I'm certainly glad that we have the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 because it tells you some things that you would never ever 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 have known about and without divine revelation. So Abraham is going to believe something that he can't see that he can't prove that makes no sense and certainly does not seem possible but he's doing it because God said to do it. And God didn't even say he was going to get him back he just says offer him as as a let's see Okay, I'm ah, I'm looking for the verse, and I eleven eight by faith. Let's see. Okay, well that's uh, that's not quite it. Let's see. Um, let's see. Oh, here it is. Verse, verse seventeen. Hebrews eleven, verse seventeen. Now look at this. This is this man's faith. This is nothing short of remarkable. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promise has offered up his only begotten son, his only one of a kind son, of whom it was said in, that in Isaac shall your seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence he also received him in a figure. See what Abraham's faith was? When he said, we will come again to you, he expected that God was going to resurrect this son of his, that he would put on all. He was going to burn him to ash, as a sacrifice, and God was going to right then and there resurrect him, bring it back to life. Now, is that faith? I don't know if anybody... I don't know if anybody ever heard have faith like this. This is faith beyond anything, but yet that's what this, this was this man's act of faith. That's why he was a great man. And it's, and it's an interesting story, too, because when you look through it, if you read through Genesis 12 through 22... And you stop at 21 and ask yourself a question. Is this man worth anything spiritually? Is this man ever going to mount to a hoot? You'd say, no, nah, there's nothing special about us. He's just a common Joe. He's not even as, he offered his wife twice to save his own skin. He's not even as good as I am. But then you read the 22nd chapter, and you know what you realize? One of the most important lessons that you could ever learn from the Bible. God never gives up on his own until he brings them to maturity. God never gives up because this man... God had to do this work in his life. God had to do something to this man and somehow God had to give that man the faith. And God worked in this man's life until he does this. Now, if you remember, just a couple chapters back in the 20th chapter with Abimelech, he offered his wife again as a saved man. He said, oh, she's my sister to save his own skin. And the next thing you know, he does this. I tell you, if there's ever been an act of faith, that is astounding, this is it. This is the greatest, in my opinion, this is the greatest act of faith in the Bible. Now, what happens because of that? In verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham, this is Genesis 22, verse 15, a second time, and and said unto him, a second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because you have done this thing, and you have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven. Oh, you know what? That sounds like some of the things that God said back in Genesis 12 that Abraham didn't get, but now all of a sudden Abraham is going to get. Well, you could say he earned it, but I don't know that I'd say he earned it exactly. I still say this is grace. He says, I'll multiply your star, seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand, of sea, of the sand which is on the seashore and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now it's not families of the earth. Now it's nations of the earth. But it still reflects that he's going to get something that he didn't get back in Genesis 12 because he didn't take it by faith. He didn't reach out. He was an unsaved man. But now of all things, talk about grace. God is going to give it to him anyway based upon this one act. He says, that, because you've obeyed my voice. Now I said it was a covenant, but did you read the word covenant in there? No, you didn't. So you do have to find a New Testament commentary on that which says it was. And this is why we say it's a covenant. Remember the, remember the guideline that I've always shared with you folks. If you say something's a covenant in Scripture, Scripture better say it's a covenant. If it, what Scripture says is a covenant, it's a covenant. If Scripture doesn't say it's a covenant, it is not a covenant, period. So in Luke chapter 1, we find out that, yes, it is a covenant. It actually is a covenant. Because we find out, if you begin reading it, Luke chapter 1, verse 67. We find out, oh yes, this is a covenant, all right. And it's a remarkable thing. And and we're breaking into a context. But and it says, And his father Zacharias, this is after the birth of John the Baptist. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and has raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David." which he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world or since an age began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of them that hate us. Now listen to this. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham. Now where did God swear an oath to Abraham in the Old Testament? Genesis 22. Remember what we read? Verse 16. Genesis twenty two, and the Lord said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, because you've done this thing, and not withheld by some and only some, that in, and he goes on and names the things that follow. But you find I you find over here it says, I've sworn, and it says in, in Zechariah says he's filled with the Holy Spirit, so he's not just babbling out of turn. He said, The do you remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. You go through the Old Testament, and the only time you ever find an oath sworn to Abraham is in the 22nd chapter. And so it says it is a covenant. Now, this is unusual, but in the basis of Scripture, I say this is covenant number four. And this covenant, so Abraham has four covenants. So when people, if you ever read theologians, they talk about the Abrahamic covenant, scratch your head and say, wonder which one they're talking about. Because most of them don't recognize, and I don't understand why. But you know what, Pastor? I think these people need to learn how to read English, don't you? You and I can do a little Greek and Hebrew work, can't we? But we can also read English. And some of these theologians, Scott, they can't read English. It says covenant, doesn't it? I mean, if it says that's a covenant, then that's a covenant. And that's how common when it talks about us being involved in some of Abraham's covenant in, in the book of Galatians, it has to do with the fourth covenant and his gate possessing the seed of his enemies. And that's where we're going to come in, in that one little teeny tiny corner. But we're not in the other cup. We're not given the land. I don't want that land over there. My goodness, I don't want that sand and dirt and fleas. You can have it. So would you say then that Abraham was offered great rewards? Boy, who was he ever? Four, Four covenants, three of which benefited him a great deal personally. And the child that he was given, and then he has six other children beyond. Oh, this man was a very, very fortunate, blessed man in his time, because now he has an heir to pass his wealth on to. That was the one thing. We'll get. We'll come back to that on on number on page six. We'll come back to point number two. We're going to have to pick up the pace, and I, I do apologize that I'm enjoying myself and slowing down a little bit. But uh, this is material that you, you're not going to hear too often, and so it's a good time to share it, because this is material in the Old Testament it's there for us to know. If it's there for us to know, then I think we ought to try and know as much of it as we can. Because I always remember one thing, and this is what I remind myself of. When I know more about the Bible, I know more about the one who wrote the Bible because I know what he plans. If I know what he's planned and what he said he's going to do and what he's done, then I know something about him and I know a little more about God. And how else am I going to draw close to God? When God says, draw near unto me, how do I draw near unto him? I have to know something. I have to draw near to him based upon what I know. And I'm not going to get it out of my imagination. It's here. Even the Old Testament, it has a terrific value. And it helps you to understand, by the way, too, why it is that we have something better. Because I don't want what Abraham had. Do you? No. I want what we have. I want to be like Christ. I want to see him face to face when he comes into rapture. That's what I want. The rest of it, all the wealth, they can have it. Even the oil revenue don't even want that. Don't want to open my own gas station. No, none of that. Well, let's close in a word of prayer, and we'll come back next week to the fact that it shows us too that Abraham was off, God offered Abraham something he needed, and that's something it's important to remember because when we deal with a lost person, what they need—they need forgiveness. We don't need to pussyfoot around. Christ died for your sins. You need forgiveness, and they don't want to. Boy. Oh, Brother Scott, I don't want to go into that, how much you hear pussyfooting around the fact that there's sin and they need forgiveness. Why don't we just tell people the truth? Why don't we just do that? Wouldn't it be so much more simple for us? It would. It would. It just takes a little courage. Well, that's another story. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Father, tonight again, we're thankful for the remarkable grace you've shown. We're not the only recipients of grace Abraham received a number of things that were a reward, that were things he didn't earn that you gave him, even almost as though he earned them. And Father, while we're amazed at the grace that you showed to him, we should even be more amazed at the grace you've shown to us because we don't have the promise of a land. We don't have the promise of an earthly kingdom. We don't have earthly wealth. We have something far better. We have wealth in Christ. We have the promise that when he comes for his people, the church, we're going to see him as he is, we're going to be like his humanity. We're going to be like him. And we're going to be with him forever. That's the greatest, the greatest blessing, the greatest bit of grace that anyone will ever receive. Why you gave it to us, we don't know, except it gave you good pleasure. But we're so thankful tonight that you have given us a grace that far surpasses anything we could have ever imagined when we were saved. And we thank you for it now in our Savior's name. Amen.